I'm Asaf Maoz and you're listening to Strings Attached. It's been a while now that I've realized that I love making connections. Connections between people or between ideas. Hence the name of the podcast. In this episode, I met a brilliant woman that her job and passion are to make connections. To tell a story through words that will bridge between a few narratives. Just before we start, I'm inviting you to subscribe to the podcast. It helps me to spread the word. Also, if you really liked it, just recommend it to a friend. My name is Dina Kraft, and I'm a journalist, a longtime newspaper print reporter who segued in the last few years to um, podcasting as well. How does one get to be a journalist? <laughs> in my case, I think I was born into it. Um, my father was a journalist. And uh, I don't remember it, but um, my mother would actually take me to the Watergate hearings uh, that he was covering in a stroller. And so I, I, apparently I slept through most of it, but he was, uh, my mom would bring him a thermos of coffee and sandwiches and bring my little brother, my brother in tow, and uh, me and my stroller. And uh, yeah, so we, the public was allowed to listen in. So um, news was always in my house. There were... The, I remember on Sunday mornings, I would go with my father when I was very little to a newspaper stand run by two Russian Jewish immigrants, and he would pick up four newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Washington Star, which does not exist anymore for many, many years, and the Baltimore Sun. And we'd pick up uh, apple turnovers at the bakery, and um, my parents would sit the rest, for the rest of the day or the rest of the morning at least, passing the newspaper back and forth between them in our uh, living on the living room and the floor was just blanketed in newspaper. So, uh, and they were, you know, that was their, in some ways, one of their main connections to this day is the news and being sort of obsessed by the news and what's going on and sharing, you got to read this article, you read that before you could press share on your, on your phone, you know, they were sharing in real time back and forth the articles. But how did you discover that you're good with words? How did you discover that you can actually write words that make sense? You know, I always, uh, always, I mean, it was, it was, it was in the, it was in the ether sort of news and what was happening in the world. I remember my mother yelling at the TV, we had a little small little television set right next to the kitchen table where we had dinner and she was always had something to say about the news, what was going on. Um, and then by the time I was in high school, it was very clear to me, I would be on the school paper. It wasn't even a question that I would be on the school paper and I loved it. I loved it. I loved having access to all of these different students and peoples and stories. And I went to a, you know, I went to high school just outside of Washington, D.C. with a very big immigrant population and a very big, we were a majority minority high school. Um, and so there were kids from all over the world, from El Salvador, from Laos, from Cambodia, um, we had lots of African American students, we had white students, we had Asian students. And Somehow, <laughs> we um, were really like truly a melting pot. Um, with, and, and there wasn't even the word when I was growing up in the 1980s, late, late, I graduated high school in 89, multiculturalism, diversity. I mean, maybe they were there in the universities, but we were not, these were not our everyday words. But in my high school, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but there really was this connection, you know, um, between the students and the sort of, um, you know, living diversity, living, living multiculturalism without really you know, thinking about it too much. Um, and that also gave us access to great stories when I was on the school paper because we'd have every issue, we would have somebody's like, you know, story of being a refugee from 
you know, from some different part of the world. Um, and so we'd incorporate those stories as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it sort of came naturally, just this idea of, like, going, having access to, like, talk to people and then tell the story. Coming up to this in conversation, I read quite a lot of your articles. It was not very easy for me to define your genre, your art of writing. Could you, would you define your writing? Is there a definition to that? If anything I've been drawn to, it's feature writing. I'm actually not so interested in covering the news. I'm not so interested in covering like breaking news. I mean, I think it was a great thing to learn as a wire service reporter to learn how to do that, to learn how to tell a story and what's happening concisely and quickly and with context and give people what they need, the news they need to know. But that's not where my heart lies. My heart lies with digging deep into someone's story um, and to letting them really open up. Um, um, in terms of a genre, I definitely, the, the things I gravitate towards are stories that are related to history in some ways. Um, like I always think like if I could be anything, I'd be like a, a journalist of history. Like when I see like Ophelia Dillard at, at Hal, it's like, oh, that's a perfect job, like reporting on history to me, you know, or at least uh, there's something called Retro Report in uh, the Washington Post where they go back and it could be a court case or an important, you know, I don't know, um, legislation that was passed and you go back and like revisit that time, you know, that's, uh, and I studied history in college and in, and in, and in grad school. Um, so I think it deals with history. And also I, I feel like if there's any kind of theme to my stories. I've done a lot of stories about kids um, um, and their experiences, maybe not in the last couple of years as much, but I'm very much sort of interested in like children and like education. Um, but, uh, and also very much if there's a theme to my writing, it's unlikely connections, I suppose. People that aren't supposed to meet, but somehow meet and somehow their worlds connect. You're, you're bringing me directly to my next question. The thing I love about my, about my podcast is I'm trying as a musician to bring guests such as you that come from totally different fields or expertise and try to bring the parallel to, of their world to mine, to the world of music. So you're trying, you're doing the, your thing of, of, of telling the story. And for me, it's very difficult sometimes, but it's the challenge to find somebody that tells a story that could be interpreted by the people who read or listen to it, and then they could relate to that. How much time and effort do you put into finding these people, these stories, as you would call them? Mm -hmm. I mean, it depends sort of on the time frame, you know, it depends on the, and on the medium. When I was working on the podcast series, The Branch, or um, more recently, Groundwork, I spent a lot of trying, time trying to find the right characters because when you have audio, you live and breathe and die by interesting the person you're interviewing sounds, you know? They have to be sparkly, they have to be interesting. If you interview somebody who's, you know, a world expert on some topic, but they're dry and their voice is flat and they have no inflection and they don't really, they might be passionate about what they do, but they're not really good at, ex at, at, at expressing their passion. It's really hard to save it. It's like dead tape, you know? Um, so I feel like in the world of audio, I have to work harder to find the right person. Um, and sometimes I'll do what I call like auditions, like audition interviews. Like I'll interview a couple of different people before I get to the right person because uh, you, you don't have, there's no, there's no, there's no time to have a, a boring flat voice in, in, in what you're doing. For my print stories, I guess, it, you know, it, you know, for example, recently I had a story for the Christian Science Monitor. I needed to talk to uh, Ukrainian refugees who came to Israel and I wanted to focus on one person's story. So I found this person um, named Diana with some help from the Jewish agency. Um, and they sent me a, 
uh, interview that she had done while she was on the border of Romania, while she was at a hotel there. And I was so moved by her story that it was pretty clear to me that I, you know, she's the person I wanted to speak to. And when I actually met her, it turned out it was it was not a short interview. I think we spoke for almost three hours, and it felt like it was part therapy, it was part interview. And of course, I think you have to be careful. Like, you know, a journalist is not a psychologist, but she has just been traumatized. And so we can't go directly into the story. We can't go directly into, so you're packing your suitcases. How did you decide to pack your suitcases? You know, first, I wanted to hear about her. And what did you want to talk about was Odessa and how heartbroken she was at leaving the city that she loves. And she was still, and then actually, the first hour, we just talked about Odessa. And we looked at photos of Odessa, and she showed me a video on her phone. She was in a, um, a reality TV show that was set in Odessa about Odessa supermoms, and that was a way for me to actually see the building she lived in right near the opera house, the famous opera house. She lives right downtown. She's the fifth generation in her family to live in her apartment building in Odessa. And, um, and it was actually learning about Odessa that kind of gave me the beginning of my story, which was that Diana is still in Odessa. She's living in a Jerusalem hotel with her two sons, and she's a single mom. But she's still in her mind and her heart is in Odessa. Um, but it was because of that that they, then she could then open up to me. You know, she could then open up about like sobbing every night in the shower after her sons are put to bed because she doesn't know what's going to be next, you know, and waking up in the middle of the night and not knowing, you know, how her life is going to play out. You've been in Israel for some time reporting, and I feel that you have an interesting perspective I want to say, in quotes, an outsider reporting from Israel or on Israel. And I wonder, do you think it gives you a better perspective? Or do you become assimilated with the society after some time? Yeah, it's a really good question. <clears throat> I think sort of my perhaps best reporting has been when I've been away for a while. You know, I've been in and out of Israel for the last few many years now. Um, but, uh, I think that knowing the language, you know, speaking Hebrew and knowing the culture and the society and the people and the, who's, who are the players, who's, what's going on, um, is immeasurably helpful, but so is this sort of outsider, you know, I'm still an American, I'm still me, I'm still, I've also, you know, lived in from parts of the world, had different experiences. Um, I feel like that outsider lens, uh, helps me see things that perhaps other people don't see like the connections that somebody else might take for granted because it's so normal, but that for me is so spectacularly uh, unique. Like I'll give you one example. Um, when I was covering the second Lebanon war, I was up in Naharia and I was in the home of one of the kidnapped soldiers. There were two kidnapped soldiers, as you might remember. I was in the home of one of them, of um, Eud, Eudi, whose name was... Um, so I was at his, and, and, and in the midst of the conversation, and there was a lot of chaos and a lot of people running in the house, somehow the story was told that he was three years old when Samir Kuntar came to Naharia and um, kidnapped two of his neighbors. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the, the terrible story that seared into the memories of Israelis of, you know, he shot the father on the beach, um, and then he killed this four-year-old girl um, apparently with, with a rock to her head um, on, on, on the shore there. It's a terrible story. And his mother had mentioned kind of in passing that he had woken up from the sound of sirens that night. And she said, Uri, Uri, go back to sleep. Very quickly it became clear that Samir Kuntar would be the prisoner they, they would swap the soldiers for. Um, and I was like, wow, what a crazy connection. And I held on to that story for two years. <laughs> um, 
I remember thinking about it, and uh, and I approached um, the New York Times correspondent here in Jerusalem at the time, who I was doing some work for, Ethan Bronner, and I said, I think there's a story here because we knew at this point that the they were going to be exchanged. We didn't know if they were alive or dead, although it seemed, by all indications, they were not. Com- they were going to be coming back in coffins, right? And I said, there's. It's always been rattling in my head that like. This, this 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 soldier was once a little boy, and he intersected with this terrible moment in time, um, and now his fate is connected to that moment in time. I said, I, I don't know what I'm going to find exactly, but I would love to go to Naharia and write a story of close connections and how this whole conflict is in some ways about connections and misconnections, you know, and... Um, and, uh, and and the tr- these tragedies are played out in very short distances, right? And so that's why everybody always knows somebody who knows somebody who is impacted by them in some way. So he said, I can't promise you we're going to give you a story out of this, but sure, go, see what you can find. My daughter was just a few months old. I didn't have a lot of time to play with, but I had to you know, pick her up by the time the Metapellet would bring her back. So I, so I had a few hours, and I, we knew that this prisoner swap was about to happen. So I um, knew that that Smadar Cohen, who was the the widow, was not speaking to journalists, but she had just come out with a statement to the press, I think, where she had met some journalists and said that she was okay with Kuntar. They had, the Israeli authorities had her blessing to exchange Samir Kuntar uh, and for these these, uh, soldiers. So um, I got her phone number. I asked her if I could come up and interview her the next day. She said, let me think about it. But I didn't have any time. I had to get the train. And this, so I just went on the train and called her from the train again and said, do you think I can come? And she said, yes. And I remember like lowering my voice and trying to be as like empathetic sounding as possible. You know, I don't want to be a vulture as a journalist. Like that's sort of like our, that's sort of the, the flip side, right? You're talking to the person in this immense time of pain, you know, and I've interviewed people after they've lost loved ones and it's horrible, right? It's like the last thing you want to do. You want to crawl into a hole. But at least I try to do it sensitively. But so I, I remember trying to think like, okay, let me just emanate that I'm a good person I'm, and that I'm, trust, I'm, I'm trustworthy. She said, yes, I could come. In the meantime, I also lined up an interview with Udi's, um, Aod's mother. His wife, um, Karnit Goldwasser, didn't want to speak and that was fine. And I went and I ran around town and I talked to different people and I, and I had these two key interviews with these two women. And I tried to like braid the story together of these intersected destinies, tragedies, whatever you want to call them. And it ended up being the front page, the top of the front page of the New York Times, the day of the of the prisoner swap. And everyone afterwards, all my journalist friends, were like, "How did you know? How did you know?" I was like, "Well, I just again, I had that sort of outsider perspective that this was really unique. Maybe an Israeli would say, yeah, whatever. Of course, everyone knows each other.'" Um, but also like everything is timing, right? Like knowing the right time to do it and also being lucky enough and grateful that these people would open up and sitting in the living room of Samadar and having her, you know, open up these photo albums of her daughters, you know, I mean, she smothered one of her daughters in a boydom in a, in a crawl space while she was trying to stay quiet, you know, because he had entered the apartment and it's a, it's a terrible story. Um, but, uh, but I hope I told it sensitively and that's sort of what I try to do is like try to really be human with the people that I'm interviewing, try to really listen to them, um, and step back and let them tell their story. And then my job is to sort of craft it, but in their words. That's your inner musician, the <laughs> listener. But I, I must ask you, you do have this outsider view, point of view, but what's your blind spot? What's my blind spot? I mean, listen, I, um, 
you know, I'm Jewish, I'm of this place, you know, I think doing the podcast, The Branch, and interviewing Palestinian citizens of Israel, interviewing Palestinians in Gaza, from Gaza in one case, and Palestinians from the West Bank, I mean, I think, you know, all of us, like, we have our certain uh, perspectives and our um, also our privileges, right, in the way that we see things, in the way that we experience things, Um and um, my blind spot might be, you know, just, you know, their story and their traumas and their family, you know, um, background and whatnot, and, and and wanting to know more of it, and wanting to, and not always maybe, maybe not always maybe knowing the the way to ask the question to to get the best answer. When I prepare for for a concert or playing a piece, I practice quite a lot, and I research. I read about the composer, about the era. Um, what's your process? Of mm. digging into a story, into an idea of a story? Mm-hmm. What do I, you do? I love research. It's my, probably one of my favorite parts is kind of <laughs> just getting lost in lots of rabbit holes sometimes that lead me to other places and other ideas. Um, I mean, oftentimes I stumble upon stories like this one, you know, that, um, the one I described now. Um, so, uh, but then, but then yeah, as much as possible, sort of reading about the topic or reading about the person, um, reading past interviews, looking through, I mean, YouTube is an amazing resource, like for past interviews people have given is really helpful. Um, and also I spend a lot of time talking to experts. I mean, especially for the Christian Science Monitor, we're looking for stories that um, help explain patterns of thought and help explain people who think out of the box and why and help explain shifts in societies. So that means a lot of homework. I mean, I can talk to somebody for like two hours, an expert, and only use like a line in the story. I mean, recently I did a story that had to deal with um, Jor- Israeli-Jordanian relations and I spoke to Odette Alan, a former ambassador to Jordan, and when he saw the story came out, he's like, well, that was, he's like, that's not a very cost-effective use of your time. We spoke for two hours and you gave me one quote, you know? And so, it, but it's, I was like, but no, but you informed the entire story because we had that conversation and he gave me like a crash course in Jordanian-Israeli relations. Um, but that's also sort of the flip side of media literacy. When you're interviewing somebody, they don't know that like you need to interview them a long time to get even a little bit. Um, and so I also try to prep people, especially when I'm doing narrative journalism, which I really prefer to do, the narrative longer, is like, I'm going to ask you really crazy questions. Like, what was the flavor ice cream that you had the morning of the accident? Like, what was the color of your car? What did you dream about? What are you, um, what language do you count in, you know, if they're not native, native speaker of the country they live in? Like, just really ask them these very precise and very, you know, questions because I'm trying to paint a picture later on. And so I need that information, but it takes time and it takes their patience. You interview many people. Mm. You said you get sometimes a quote, one quote from them. Eventually, you tell a story. It's your story or their story told by you. Mm. How do you write a story that doesn't um, make the truth or the facts sound different than what they are? Right, right. Well, I think part of it's fact-checking yourself and being careful with yourself and making sure that you aren't embellishing something too much. I mean, I'll tell you right now, I am in the midst of a really challenging but really important project um, that in some ways I feel like I've been preparing my whole life to, to try to tell. I was asked by Penguin Random House, which is a publisher in London, um, to be a ghostwriter slash co-writer uh, for a Holocaust memoir of a 93-year-old woman in Jerusalem. Wow. And at first they didn't tell me who it was. And I said, um, but I immediately guessed <laughs> um, that it was Hannah Pick, Hannah Goslar Pick, who was one of Anne Frank's best friends. 
Um, and because uh, I interviewed her 20 years ago for the AP. And I don't know, somehow I, I made the connection very quickly. I was like, who else would they put, would they invest in a story like this? You know, like, and indeed it's her. And we've started working on it, the project now together. And it's, um, it is a challenge, you know, she's 93. Um, a lot of her memories are very distant now. Um, she's been telling her story for decades. So on the one hand, it's very present for her, you know, I mean, she tells it and she knows it well, but to try to peel back the layers and go to a richer, deeper, more emotive place, especially because I'm doing it on Zoom because of Corona. <laughs> so wow. it's been even like, an extra challenge. How do you develop rapport with somebody who you have to write in their voice and yet you aren't sitting next to them every day to get their story. You're sitting across from them on a Zoom screen. So it's super challenging. Um, so I've been trying to dive as much as possible into the history of the time and into, you know, rereading, re re it's in my bag right now, Anne Frank's diary, you know, in <laughs> um, which she talks about Hannah. She talks about her several times. She has a dream where she's imagining poor Hannah, you know, like is suffering this terrible fate of being deported and arrested. And here she is safe. And the... Irony, of course, is Hannah is 93 years old, a great-grandmother to 30, and Anna only lived until she was 15. Um, but, uh, but for me, you know, it's, 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 it's a huge challenge, like trying to think about how to take this story, this incredibly rich story, which is rich in its own, on its own level, not just because Hannah is, was best friends with Anna, and they were Hannah and Anna, and Sana, another girl, Sana, who also um, tragically was murdered uh, in Sobibor, um, but to, to, to do her story justice, but also flesh it out with context to help make it rich, even richer than it is. Um, and to, and to explain that in some ways I kind of see this, I don't mean to sound too, uh, make it sound too lofty, but I see this book project, this incredible challenge as a sequel to Anne Frank's diary, because Anne Frank, we last see her, she's inside of the secret annex and, you know, it's a coming-of-age book, right, in some ways more than it is a Holocaust book because we don't see Auschwitz where she's transported to. We don't see her last days in Bergen-Belsen. Um, um, and that's why I think it's, such, it's an easier story for a lot of people to digest um, because it's easier in some ways that way. We don't see the horrors up close. But Hannah does. You know, Hannah got to see those horrors up close. And Hannah also had the, the, the privilege and the luck of rebuilding her life. Coming up to this conversation, um, we were talking a bit and I asked you, um, was there any significant, I would say, or an important event in your life that maybe changed or influenced your professional um, way of thinking, your professional uh, work? Is there something that you would love to share? I was extremely lucky to grow up um, with a next-door neighbor who, like you, was a musician. His name was Alan Hill, and he started off as a violinist. It's a good profession. <laughs> uh, he was Suzuki. I remember going to his Suzuki concerts when he was like six or seven years old, but he pretty quickly, by nine, he started playing the clarinet. He was influenced by my brother, who was also a clarinet player. And he became an amazing clarinetist, also plays the saxophone, um, was a really wonderful jazz saxophonist as well. And... Um, Ended up going to university in Boston to the, the, the New England Conservatory of Music and um, was one of the few students of color who was also a classical musician and, um, you know, very much wanted to be 
what you are. He wanted to be a Philharmonic player. He wanted to be, he wanted to be an orchestra in an orchestra. And, um, he was approaching his uh, graduation and he had just gotten word that he was, um, going to be in the St. Louis symphony quartet. So he was hugely relieved this and that anyway. Um, so two weeks before graduation, Alan was, uh, walking down a street, um, in South Boston, not South Boston in, um, he was walking down the street in his neighborhood in the south end of Boston, which is not too far from the conservatory. And he was jumped by two guys um, and he, uh, who pulled a knife on him and uh, they, they wanted his money, his wallet. There was some sort of struggle and um, he fought with them and the end they, they ran off and he was left sort of to bleed and die on a sidewalk basically. And um, he staggered across the road and collapsed and, um, was taken to the hospital and um, miraculously came out of surgery and then um, not so miraculously, um, tragically, he caught um, what's something called, he went into, his body ended up going into septic shock and he died. Alan was murdered in Boston and this was in 1993. This was the height of the crack epidemic. Um, we had grown up in Washington, D.C., which was the murder capital of America. And every morning we would hear the radio station giving the statistics of, of more people who were murdered. But for me, that always felt very far away, that world of sort of, you know, like urban violence, as we'd call it, and and the crack epidemic. It was not anything that like it would touch my life, you know, and um and I, you know, years later, I attended the trial um, for the two men who were accused of taking Alan's life, and I was sort of horrified by them that they that they they were that they could take his life. And I remember this very specific moment in the courtroom. I had been practicing for years to kind of catch their eyes. I wanted to like impart like the pain and the agony. And I, I remember like, I wanted to like shoot daggers out of my eyes and have it penetrate their heart. I remember one of them, two of them, and they were brothers, half brothers. And one of them turned around, he was like tying his sneaker and he looked at me and he knew that I was connected to the family. Cause I was sitting in between Alan's parents, Larry and Louise and in, in the, at the, in the tri in the courthouse. And he just laughed at me, even this kind of smirk. And, um, anyway, fast forward many years later, almost 20 years later, I was living in Boston for the first time. And I, after Alan, after, at the trial, I remember leaving the trial at the courthouse and saying, I am never going to live in Boston. Boston is the city that, that stole Alan. But when I knew I was going to be coming to live in Boston for a while, um, um, I, I decided that I think I'm going to have to revisit the story of Alan if I'm going to make peace with the city. And so in the process, I, um, was doing research um, and rethinking this idea of, of, of the two young men who took Alan's life and thinking, oh, you know, from, from thinking like, may they be locked up forever and never see them again. And they indeed did get life without parole, um, uh, to thinking, whoa, like they are two brothers. They have a mother. I have children now. Like this is the story of, of a tragedy of two Two people, two, two, two of, of two worlds that collided: the world of of Herdius and James, who you know accused of killing Alan, and uh, Alan's family and friends. Like our lives collided in one, you know, one horrible moment in time, and um, we are forever connected now. So how can I not talk to them? How can I not try to find out what their story is? Um, and I found out through my research there was something called restorative justice, which brings victims and offenders together in a voluntary way in a mediated conversation. So, um, with much trepidation and thought, I decided that I was going to reach out to them and I was going to try to have a conversation with them. 
But because they're incarcerated and because I'm related to the person they killed, um, the laws of Massachusetts means that you can't approach them directly. So I uh, approached the Department of Correction to arrange such a meeting between us. And, um, And I thought I would document this as part of like a series of articles, potentially a potential book one day. And in the end, um, I was very disheartened to find out that they did not want to, um, that they couldn't actually meet with me because they were still appealing. They appealed at that point 18 times. Um, and I can understand why. I mean, it's all, from, from, all, from, from all the evidence, they, they are indeed the two that took his life. But um, they will never get out of jail. And they were, they were, Alan was 21 and they were 20 and 18 years old. And it's, I started coming to see this as a, as a, you know, that three lives were lost, not just one. Um, anyway, I, so I, I, when it, when it became clear, I wouldn't be able to actually to meet them myself. I set out to learn more about restorative justice and I ended up, um, covering, um, a group of inmates, a group of well, this is also an interesting question of language, right? I mean, in the old days, we'd call them inmates. And then I started learning in this language of, of, um, of restoration, of, of restorative justice, which I came to, is that, you no, know, you call them, you know, incarcer- incarcerated people, you know? Um, so I went to this prison outside of Boston and started, uh, the first time was, was to go to a restorative justice conference inside the prison, organized by the men inside this maximum security prison. And I went as a journalist with my journalist hat. I didn't plan to like uncover myself as, as that I had a personal sort of interest in it. But that day led to amazing connections with these men who I was sitting with in these circles, these restorative justice circles, um, um, who were sharing like very intimate, difficult moments in their life, not just with me, the journalist, but with um, in every circle, there was a person who had been impacted by murder, usually uh, mothers or fathers whose sons had been killed, um, usually in Boston. And um, at one point, I remember this one guy, Richie, passed the talking piece to me, which Outside of prison is a rock, but or a stone usually, but in prison is a piece of paper. <laughs> and he said, "No, no, no, no. There are no, 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 no one can. No, there's no such thing as a, sta- a bystander here. You also have to speak." And so, to my surprise, I heard myself telling them my story and taking off my hat, you know, uh, as a journalist for that moment. And um, by chance, in the same group was a woman who was in the um, district attorney's office and had actually been there the night that Alan had been killed. She was at the crime scene. And anyway, again, connections upon connections. And But it, what ended up turning into this different journalistic um, journey was talking to these men and getting to know these men inside the prison, um, several of whom I, I actually would call friends at this point. And it was through one of them in particular, somebody I met in that very first um, visit to Norfolk Prison, um, was somebody named Armand who had been in prison since he was 17 years old, also for committing a murder. And, uh, and we, and so what happened basically is instead of having restorative justice with the two brothers, as I call them, I ended up having this restorative justice experience with Armand and with the other men in the prison. I, t- I ended up going there as a volunteer. Um, I also wrote articles about, about, um, what, what was going on in the prison with restorative justice programs there, but we became, um, there's a word for it. We became proxies for each other, um, and and sort of and, and it, for lack of a better word, for each other's healing. You know, they the the people who are in prison are not allowed to reach out to the people they harmed, as they call them, or people they, you know, uh, lives that they stole, and um and 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 so there's you're sort of blocked, right? Like, and so we were both blocked from doing what we wanted to do, but through each other, we kind of came through this process of um I got to ask my questions, they got to ask their questions. 
And actually, just this last summer, I was in Boston, and there's a documentary film being made about some of the men who came out of this program. And they filmed um, Armand and I in conversation, uh, which was really hard and intense because we also did it. This conversation we had was in two places. One was a memorial site to murder victims from Massachusetts, and one, and then we also went along the sidewalk where Alan was actually murdered, which was really hard to do. But it also felt really sort of it felt meaningful to also be there with Armand and to tell him the story from the sidewalk and to talk it through. You're, you're tell, telling me all those stories, amazing stories, and I, I have to ask myself, how do you protect yourself mentally? Uh, how, do so you, how do you put, you know, you're saying I'm putting the, the journalist hat, but eventually you're the same person. Mm. How do you come back home and, and I, I'm sure you... You marinate in the juice of the story and, mm. and, and everything you heard. How do you do that? Um, it's really hard. It's, I mean, I would say that uh, there were times where I would leave the prison and I'd pull to the side of the road and I would just sob. It was just so, so hard. It was hard. It, you know, it was, on the one hand, it was an incredible gift to help Alan stay alive through telling not just anybody his story, but telling these people who had taken a long time, many years in prison to face their crimes, to face their victims, um, and to be able to bring the Allen story to them and to be able to um, make it meaningful in their life. I actually brought a piece, a piece of a letter that Alan brought to me, that Alan, sorry, Alan had written me in a letter about his own practicing and his own playing. Can I read it to you? Sure. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, I hope I don't cry when I say it. <laughs> um, so he wrote this in, in one of his last letters to me. He said, I can make myself feel so good. I know what I'm... Okay, this might take a couple of takes. Hold on a second. Um, I can make myself feel so good. I know what I'm practicing for to satisfy my ear. And I don't think in the past I've accepted the potential of what I want and what I can accomplish. I'm curious... When you were watching a scene from a movie or a play or listening to a performance and you get goosebumps, what did the performer feel? That's different from what the receiver hears, I think. The way I feel when I satisfy my ears is like goosebumps, inside out, a certain kind of warmth. Maybe the next time you get goosebumps, you will ask the person who gave them to you, how did you feel? You know me, you know me, Dina. I'm no rocket scientist, but for the rest of my life, I know what to do. And so, um, so what I told them is I, uh, the men at Norfolk prison, I said, you know, we all have to live up to our potential and to goosebumps, both to create goosebumps and to receive them. So when I think about like, uh, you said, you asked that question of like, what's the theme that, res what's the theme that resonates in your writing? I mean, it's a very lofty goal to like <laughs> get to the brilliance of Alan Hill, but yeah, to give people goosebumps. I love it because, you know, one of my goals as a, as a musician, as a performer, is to bring my audience to have goosebumps, to have these magical moments. And I don't know if they feel it the same like I do, as he said. I love it. Mm. So well put. Thank you. Thank you. And that was... And the, and the men from the prison put that up like in, in their, in like, I don't know, one of their club rooms, like they asked to put it up and it was such like a good feeling to know that like his live, his words lived in this sort of place where they shouldn't live. And again, that kind of brings me back to this sort of, you know, theme of like, 
interconnecting connections, like things and places that shouldn't meet, but that sometimes collide anyway. And, um, you know, the, the, there's a poem for whom the bell tolls by John Donne. And actually the, um, the lawyer who was defending the two, one of the two brothers in the, in the, in the trial, he actually cited that he's like, we, we're all here together. We are all pulled together by the same tragedy. And, you know, and he cited that poem and, uh, you know, I think, and, and, and it, it, I think, you know, sometimes it's easier to get sort of goosebumps out of tragedy, right? But it's, but it's like, how do you, how do you lift yourself? Not just, how do you not just stay in the sad part, right? Like, how do you find the life part of it? Um, you know, and, it, and it's amazing. You know, one of those goosebump endings that I was lucky enough to write in an article was apropos my <laughs> pension for writing about Holocaust survivors. Um, you may have know who Janusz Korczak was. So I had never heard of him. I, you know, in Israel, kids know who he is. In America, he was sort of a forgotten figure. And my mother had given me a, a book of um, a, a collection of his writings, and I read it when I was pregnant. And I remember like sobbing, like what an amazing man. And then I thought, are there any orphans left? Could I find them? And so I found three of them. At this point, I'm sure they're not longer, no longer with us. And one of them, I visited his house. I think he lived in Petah Tikva. And he told me about a, um, he told me about a Pesach Seder. It was just very appropriate. We're doing this interview right before Pesach. I'm not sure what it'll air, but we're doing it right before Pesach. And he said, Seder at the orphanage was this huge thing. All the kids were all super excited. But the thing they were most excited about was the afikomen. And how would you have an afikomen with like, I don't know, like 200 kids or something? How would you have an afikomen? So Korchak and his brilliance decided that the afikomen would not be an afikomen like hidden, you know, behind the sofa somewhere. It would be a um, walnut tucked into a kanadalech, tucked into a matzah ball. And whoever won that, whoever, whoever was the lucky matzah ball, that's um, lucky kanadalech winner with the, with the, with the, with the, with the walnut inside, that would be the winner. And it was like they got a serious chunk of money for it, too. It was really exciting. And these were orphans. They were happy to have, like, you know, some extra money. So this man tells me the story of how he was so excited, you know, and he was hoping that that Seder would be his turn. And he started talking to me, and he started to cry. And he started to, he, um, and he, ta- and he talked to me about how he was the lucky winner, like, you know, Passover Seder 1939, whatever it was. And then he, with a trembling hand, he reaches into his pocket and he takes out his wallet. And it was like a slow motion moment. And in the wallet, there was a plastic bag. And then he starts unfolding this plastic bag very slowly. In the plastic bag, is, I think it was a leather pouch. And then he opened the leather pouch and there were the shards of this walnut. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, apropos goosebumps and walnut and 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 or walnuts, I feel like again that's sort of the goal. Like, how do you get to the heart of a story? How do you get to like the most meaningful and you know and, and everything that that said about this man and the legacy of Korchak and what he and that he still kept his lucky his lucky Gothi Coleman in his pocket, you know, seventy years later. I'd love to ask you my last question which is actually quite simple. What is the story you still didn't tell that you <laughs> wish you would have or you could have? Uh, I have two stories to still tell fully, I feel like. Um, one is I alluded to the Alan story because I've written various sections of it but haven't like ever like compiled it into a proper one thing. Um, in part because I think I'm still sort of waiting for those two brothers. I'm still waiting for that moment where I can speak to them. I, you know, I don't believe that stories are... are 
you know, tied up in a neat right bow, you know? Um, but I feel like that, that, that is missing on some level. Um, so that story is a story I feel like in some ways, maybe it still needs to be, I need to dedicate some time to, um, and then anyone who knows me for the last many years knows that the story that I've been walking around for a long time with um, goes back to the earliest years of this place, um, apropos insider, outsider. My great uncle, uh, Ernst, came to, uh, to uh, British Mandate Palestine in 1920 from Salzburg. Uh, another music connection for you um, is he was born in Mozart's house. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and my grandmother, his younger sister, was born on Mozart's birthday <laughs> in that house. Um, so he came to Palestine as a, as a young uh, halutz, as a pioneer, uh, lived in the Galilee, and um, had you know, a story, it's sort of the, the lesser told story, which is the tragic story. Um, not only did he have malaria, he also um, uh, fell into a depression and shot himself. Um, and, uh, I uncovered his gravestone or the engravings on his gravestone in, in the, the Canaret Cemetery, the cemetery in the Sea of Galilee, where lots of who's who of, um, early Zionists are buried. And there are more than one suicides buried there. Many, several people who committed suicide are, are buried there. Um, and I uncovered these very bizarre, um, engravings on his, uh, very unique gravestone. Um, when I came there as a college student, I, um, was wiping away the dirt and the debris and the years of wear, and I saw a mosquito hovering on the top of the of the of the of the marble, and I thought, oh, that's very strange. Someone mentioned a mosquito to me, but it makes sense. He had malaria. But then, as I continued to wipe away the years um, on the stone, two circles appeared in front of me, and I saw that they were actually eyes, and it was actually the face of a devil. And there's uh, with with, with there's symbols of half, half satanic moons and of horns. The story of of Ernst. Um, uh, who became Natan Ikal um, while he was here. But the story of Natan slash Ernst is the story of, um, you know, in the court, a story of sort of the mystery of the devil on the gravestone and what the devil on the gravestone sort of symbolizes and, and what it could possibly be a metaphor for um, and, uh, and why people were so reluctant to speak about him in the years afterwards. And, uh, and then the story of my family here, you know, sort of a, some, sort of com some sort of family memoir slash history of this place is something I'd like to tackle in some form. I must tell you that while editing this episode with Dina Kraft, I was in tears listening to her story. I would like to dedicate this episode to a friend, Josh Mitnick. Josh was a journalist, a man of many beautiful words that passed last year way too early. Thanks to him and his wife Leslie, I was lucky to meet Dina and produce this episode. I would love to hear from you. Visit the Facebook page Strings Attached Podcast. Like it, comment, ask, or whatever makes you happy. You can also email me at asafpodcast at gmail.com. I'm Asaf Maoz, and thanks for listening to Strings Attached. <laughs>